0: Welcome to episode 15 of the HPBA podcast. For this episode, we had the honor of talking to Dr. Yuman Fong from City of Hope. Dr. Fong needs a little introduction as a true expert and innovator in the field of HPB surgery. Dr. Fong received his medical degree from Cornell University and stayed on at Cornell for general surgery residency. He then went on to surgical oncology fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He stayed on at Memorial for roughly 30 years, serving in various positions to include Vice Chair of Technology Development and the Murray Brennan Chair of Surgery. Since 2014, he has served as Chair of the Department of Surgery at the City of Hope Medical Center. Dr. Fong is a true innovator in the field of HPB surgery, and in this episode, we discussed a variety of those innovations, ranging from the history and current state of minimally invasive liver surgery and looking into what Dr. Fong sees as the future of liver surgery. This was a really fun conversation, and we certainly learned a lot. Without further ado, our conversation with Dr. Yuman Fong.
1: Now, I, My name is Yuman Fong. I'm the chair of surgery here at City of Hope uh, Medical Center. Uh, we are a cancer center here on the suburbs of Los Angeles, and I've been here for the last six years. My um, trip in uh, liver surgery and then hepatobiliary surgery really goes back all the way to the 1980s. Uh, I'm kind of a, a, one of the old timers. And I, I went to medical school at Cornell and then in New York City at the New York Hospital. And then that was partnered with, uh, the Memorial Sloan at Cancer Center, which is probably the, one of the biggest cancer centers in the world. And that's where I did my cancer training and my liver surgery training. And after I trained there, uh, they happened to want me to stay on faculty. And, uh, and I, from day one, uh, all I've really been doing is liver and pancreatic surgery. And I, I've been sort of blessed with a career where I didn't have to go and deviate and do many different things. Uh, but the nice thing about I, how I've I gone through this is that I've intersected with some of the real pioneers and giants in liver surgery. Uh, like Joseph Fortners who brought the uh, uh, transplantation to New York State, uh, Les Bloomgard, who did some of their first uh, carcinoma resections. Uh, I, I worked with a lot of them and trained uh, I also the next generation uh, with them and so again I've also had the pleasure of training a lot of liver surgeons around this country who've become division chiefs as well as chairs and I've also seen a lot of technology come and go and so uh, my day job I think of it as trying to figure out what the next tool is that is important in liver surgery and so that's been uh, through the years everything from trying to decide whether burning tumors with needles was important whether uh, having anything that seals the blood vessels was important. That's because when we first started, we were just sort of clamping and tying and uh, it was all uh, uh, sutures and ties. And now we have all kinds of energy sources to help us. And uh, I was one of the first people who used staplers on the liver and uh, to go seal things. So, and then when laparoscopy came along, it was a huge debate. So we could actually go through liver surgeries laparoscopically, and now we have evolved to which robot and and uh, and what's safe and what's efficient and so have seen it all and uh, and so again uh, it's been a huge transition so I'm very excited to talk to you today about all of this or yeah. some of this <laughs> yeah i
0: think I mean I think you know we've had a couple of guests who have talked about robotic pancreas surgery, and I think you know as people have transitioned into using the robot, I think the translation to pancreas surgery is sort of obvious and a little bit easier. Whereas I think the liver is not taken off as quickly, mainly because of parenchymal transection. You know, I think people aren't sure what to use on the robot and how that's all going to play out. So can you just talk a little bit about your current practice? And if you've, you know, changed things over the last five, eight years on the robot, are you doing it differently? Or are you still doing the same parenchymal transe- transection? And do you have any kind of tips and tricks that you could share with us?
1: Oh, absolutely. Let me just talk about the evolution of MIS surgery in the liver altogether, okay? uh, I will differ with your comment there just a little bit. I will tell you that liver surgery, laparoscopically and robotically, is actually more established than pancreatic surgery. Mm. We actually have data that shows it's beneficial. Whereas uh, the robotic Whipple is still uh, kind of nebulous, the data that says, uh, is it really useful? and a robotic whipple is true expert surgery, okay? There are a handful of folks that are really good at it that can do it amazing and, and take great care of patients. But liver surgery, I'm absolutely convinced uh, we can teach everyone who does liver surgery to do it robotic, do it safely, and do it for the benefit of the patient. So let me just take you through uh, minimal invasive surgery in general. When in the 1990s, a I, I, laparoscopic I, Gallbladders were being done. People started saying, "Should we actually cut out pieces of liver? Because you know the gallbladder is kind of attached to the liver, and uh, mm. so we're grabbing at the liver anyway. And many times, you know, we got uh, taking things around the liver uh, with the gallbladder was uh, uh, something that you had to do technically, and and working on the bile ducts up there. That that became commonplace. The worries really were threefold. You know, one is, uh, uh, what are you going to cut across the liver with? Okay, so you you brought up a really good point. What are the tools for cutting the liver? And uh, second, how are you gonna retract the liver? That's because uh, most liver retractors hold the liver in place so that we can do something on an organ that's around the liver. Mm -hmm. Flipping the liver back and forth so that you can actually go do the work is actually difficult. And uh, so that became an issue. And then the the biggest issue and uh, obstacle technically was what happens if something bad happens and you tear a blood vessel and starts bleeding? Are you gonna be able to open up and, and, and uh, correct things and to rescue the patient in time? Those were the debates. But as time went on, uh, the a group of uh, laparoscopic surgeons that became very skilled at uh, liver surgery were uh, truly skilled. So uh, we actually held a consensus conference back in the early 2000s at Louisville where we could actually say, what's standard, what's uh, expert surgery? And uh, and, a, and probably the world's best laparoscopic liver surgeons actually got together and that publication. You know, uh, has been cited thousands of times, and uh, and and the field grew very quickly after that. Uh, so laparoscopic resection in expert hands is now very standard in most major liver centers around the world. The next step in the evolution was really uh, uh, robotics, as you know. Uh, Robotics is not true robotics, meaning that it is uh, an autonomous uh, machine doing the work. It's really telesurgery, where we are basically doing laparoscopy controlled by a computer. Just the computer allows us to then go and make very fine moves, filter out uh, tremors. I have instruments that could go bend around the corner, got controlled by uh, by the computer. That allows us to go and make moves that otherwise we couldn't make with our hands through small incisions. And uh, Ely has opened up the uh, field uh, in a huge way. And uh, so through the years, I've actually gone through this entire evolution where I went from open surgery to a, a small incision laparoscopic surgery. There was also a period when we did hand-assisted surgery where we made a medium-sized incision with a, where I had, and had sealed up with a piece of gel that we could put our hand through so that one hand was inside, but all the rest of the instruments were coming through small incisions. To now true to robotics and uh and now i probably do 20 25 percent of my work robotically i choose the cases very carefully okay and uh yes we can do almost anything robotically that we want but i choose mostly those operations that i believe are, uh, where the patient clearly benefits okay so let me frame that for you what robotics and laparoscopy help us do right Is avoid the big incision. So what you're doing inside is so stressful to the human being that the incision is the least important part. So if you are taking out two thirds of someone's liver, the recovery is completely dictated by the regeneration of that piece of liver and whether somebody gets infected or or other physiologic things, that is not the incision. Okay, and uh, whereas you're removing a little tumor in a badly placed area where you need to make a giant incision but you're taking out a teeny tiny piece of liver, and you can avoid that incision, you're gonna do the patient a huge favor, okay? So I generally will do single segments, uh, two segments, even single segments on both sides to remove little tumors when I, I a giant incision otherwise would have been necessary. Now I do it robotically and suddenly the incision's gone, which is the most stressful part of the open operation for those individuals and now, I'm actually able to send them home on the same day or the next morning. I have now changed liver surgery from giant incision, uh, so, uh, time in the ICU, uh, to many days in the hospital to something now that is really outpatient surgery. So, huge difference. Okay. So when I uh, some of the papers that we've been writing lately is really how to go and 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 I make this happen at many centers around the uh, around the world so when people go what's different between laparoscopy and and robotics it's really three things uh, laparoscopy it's hard okay it's hard on the surgeon because it's all physical suddenly you are doing some very heavy duty work for a long time through a little incision that you are now twisting on your hands and so hand injuries and wrist injuries and back injuries and neck injuries are very common whereas robotics the mechanicals are all mechanicals, okay? Meaning that it's not a, a manual thing. There's a machine over there doing the heavy pulling, and uh, and what that does for us is is really take away the stress on the hands, stress on the neck, stress on the back. I don't even have to scrub it. I uh, second is that robotically, fine movements are very uh, straightforward. Okay, sewing laparoscopically is an expert move, it's an expertise. You have to be a really good uh, laparoscopic surgeon to think about sewing the heart or sewing the vena cava or sewing something very, very dangerous inside. Whereas robotically, that's a competency. You can't sew a big blood vessel. You probably shouldn't be doing uh, robotic surgery. And so again, the level of expertise you need to make the really difficult and fine moves is different. So people have been finding it easier to adapt to the la- robotic than to the laparoscopy. Since less than 15% of liver surgeries around the world right now come uh, uh, in the middle and invasive fashion, by allowing greater penetrance and easier adoption, I think we really benefit many more patients by having the robot. Lastly, as we head forward and, uh, and we start using AI, artificial intelligence, and what that is is that now the uh, the robot can actually go figure out where are the major blood vessels deep to where we're working. How should we set the limits so that we don't hurt something by accident? Uh, all of that artificial intelligence, by definition, we can't really do that laparoscopically. That's all manual. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, and true automation, obviously, you cannot do laparoscopically. And uh, so you might say, what are we really going to do whole operations? I I, I uh, automatically and and, uh, and in an autonomous fashion. I don't think it's going to be a whole lot of operations. I think it's going to be parts of operations. It's sort of like when you now take off in San Francisco and you fly to New York. The takeoff and the landing, the pilots are engaged. Okay? And uh, but flying across the country, most of it is really now autopilot because it's tedious work. It's a uh, pretty straightforward work. And then you, what you need is somebody who never gets tired, who responds to signals and, uh, and, and, and alerts that uh, they can immediately respond to throughout the entire period, but not rock the plane in such a way that makes all the people back there sick, okay? And, uh, and that's what it's gonna be like for surgery. We now need to just figure out what portions of the, each operation is gonna be very tedious work that's uh, repetitive, where a robot doesn't care how many times it makes the same move if it's autonomous, uh, whereas a surgeon might. And uh, and then the skilled portions, I think that surgeon will be engaged. So again, we can't actually use AI and go autonomous laparoscopically. So those are the three yeah. big areas. I think we're going to be doing uh, the patient a favor by allowing much more MIS surgery just by having robotics.
2: Yeah. Now, just you said that uh so this with the robotic platform you really feel that we're going to be able to have a, many more surgeons performing MIS surgery compared to um people who are going to we're going to try to do it laparoscopically for example. And as a as a new younger faculty member such as myself who's in his first year and of liver and embolics surgery here and and I am using the robot platform and despite being trained on it and in training quite extensively, actually, it's still a whole nother animal when you get started. So again, how would you, how would you recommend for getting somebody to start on the robotic platform, choose cases thoughtfully to become, you know, a master surgeon, such as yourself? Because for me, it's, it's more than just the small size, the size of the tumor per se, and its location as well. And there's a concept that I always think about and I tell the fellows as well that I work with that, for me, I'm worried about the the scary things, obviously, the the patient safety, but there's also oncologic safety. So a tumor may be small, but it may be very oncologically unsafe to do this. And and all those moving parts I find actually more difficult than working the robot per se. So any tips or tricks for that would be greatly helpful.
1: Oh, absolutely. So let me go back one step and say, I, what should we do in training young surgeons? Okay. And so I think that's the future. I've actually said to a number of robotic companies, anyone not converted is probably not convertible, and don't spend money on the senior people not doing robotic surgery. All of it on young so I've said that. It? I, I actually mm. now believe it. anyone who's going to be converted probably already has. It, okay? And, uh, mm. and in terms of senior ranks. But for the junior surgeon, we now need to think through the pathways of training. And uh, and it's really, Tim, it's really thinking through and say, how are we gonna go train them to understand the organ and the big operation that start with, okay? So I personally believe that you shouldn't be able to go do high-end robotic surgery if you can't do the same things uh, or have the credential to do the same things open, okay? And uh, yeah. so if you're not an expert in that area, you shouldn't be doing that no matter how big or small the incision is. Okay? And that uh, second part of this is really, how do we go go uh, and, and, and teach during training programs? Uh, I have a kind of an interesting uh, institution where every division of surgery is in the same department. I have everything from neurosurgery down to podiatry. So when we put the fellows through, we actually rotate them, you know, to GYN, to learn about doing oophorectomies and oophorectomies, where it's pretty straightforward okay? and, uh, and straight instruments are fine with it. But now we're going to go do it robotically as as an additional training exercise for young people in a safe environment. Then they would go and learn to do uh, uh, how we go do cholecystectomies and other more straightforward things. And then we graduate to doing luminal surgery, such as in gastric and in uh, colorectal. Then we go and say solid organ surgery, such as splenectomies and uh, and, and, uh, and, and, uh, pancreatic surgery and uh, liver surgery. So again, we go and say, how do we lay out an entire training program that takes them through all the different parts and different cavities and understand how the tools work. And, uh, and, and so that's how we go do it in our fellowship. And I think in a residency program, we should now be laying all that out. Okay? And, uh, and now once you get to be an expert though, once you get to be good, and uh, you now are learning the nuances, we as educators now need to figure out how to go to the really advanced stuff, okay? So, Tim, if you look at most atlases now, they show you the operative field and that's it. <laughs> and uh, that's totally wrong, right? Because how you set up the patient and the robot matters. And where the assistant stands matters. So, again, positioning is huge, okay? Orchestration of the whole room is huge. Where your assistant sits and where that assist support is is huge. Because that person can't possibly put the, put the stapler in safely or suction efficiently if they're trying to avoid the arms all day and, uh, and it's about to be hit. And so that's why now we're fi- I'm filming uh, my cases in three different cameras. I film inside, and that's easy, comes on the robot. I film outside on the ports and on the arms, that's the local view. And then I have a room camera that films the whole room and down the line we're going to we're going to have these atlases where the screens may change okay as they're part of what we're trying to illustrate changes meaning size so in the beginning it's how do we go set up the room so the room view is dominates as we operate in the intricate portions inside we'll show the uh, operative field but then we're going to go show the ports when when it's really difficult I, i i work for the bedside assistant we want to show that and where the best port site is for that mm-hmm. to happen. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be really, really crucial, Tim. And uh, then lastly, new robots are coming, right? How are we going to go teach a different robot yeah. that by patent law has to be totally functionally different otherwise there'll be huge lawsuits, you know? And uh, mm-hmm. so JMJ has a robot coming, Metronics has a robot coming mm-hmm. I, uh, and, uh, and how are we going to go and do that, the only way to do that and, and get people up and running quickly is to go and set up multi-view uh, uh, assessment of of a of an operation and then truly walk people through. So and, uh, huge challenges that we never truly faced is, uh, in the same way when we did open surgery, where if it didn't work, we'll just make the incision bigger. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Where where are we going to find these
0: videos? I think we're all excited to to see some of these. Yeah, I'm sitting here thinking, well, thinking
2: I like I need to, an to do
1: this around. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> so so again, I I, can, uh, I one of the atlases and and this is I I have absolutely no self interest. I one of the atlases I help I I edit is an atlas called the Sages Atlas Robotic Surgery, and all proceeds go to resident and fellow education. Okay, yeah, just was a donation by all the authors to the to the uh, young people, uh, you're learning to do uh, I surgery, which is kind yeah, of cool. great. And so yeah. we already have some of those in road in and episodes like that. But it's also that there are many companies and uh, and educational services now trying to host uh, multi view uh, as well as single view uh, 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 platforms for education, where videos are each part. So uh, it, it, it's it's wide, uh, many of the widely available. In fact, we should probably go do a paper that summarizes where all the resources are. And, uh, and yeah, seriously. Everybody. Sounds great.
0: Was, I, that, that I wanted good. to um, I wanted to touch on something that I think you, you kind of mentioned there. So one of the things that I think has been interesting is a lot of the MIS talks and videos you see are kind of straight right, straight left or left lateral, these kind of straight line operations. But as colorectal liver met-, met surgery has evolved, it's more and more towards parenchymal sparing. And that I think is the harder operation. You know, a lot of times, it, we're not talking about like a peripheral wedge, but to drew real parenchymal sparing hepatectomy in the patient who has two or three mets is often more difficult. And those are the operations that it's like you look at the scan and you're like, I have to do this open because I don't know how to get down in there, MIS. And, you know, can you talk about how you've how you're doing that, how you evolved to do that? How do you get from a point where, yeah, I can do a wedge, no problem. I can do a left lateral, I can follow a straight line. But then how do you get into where you can take out a single met from
1: anywhere in the liver? Yeah. So, trying to think this through, Guy, the, the, the robot, as long as you choose the right ports and then are willing to add ports, gives you huge flexibility like the current XI platform has been set up really well for retargeting of the instruments to different areas. And so from that standpoint, just by evolution of how good the intuitive robot through the years have become uh, it allows us to move back and forth. Okay? But choosing whether to do it open, whether to do it as a hybrid, whether to do it as a, as a, a, a full a robotic and multi-field operation on the liver, uh, that comes from, I uh, experience as well as comes from discussions at difficult case conferences okay? and uh, so through the years I've said to myself I set myself a time limit how long is the case going to be because beyond a certain time I don't think the patient benefits ever okay and uh, and beyond a certain time the patients are going to start getting sick and uh and therefore it, uh, I go uh, I go with a, a a patient safety number one and that is a consideration. And more, tumor margins are number two. And whether I finish it robotically is a very distant third, And that's why I say to patients. Uh, and I, I, when, even when the patient comes and says, I, I, I must have this robotically, if they ever say that to me, I go, I know some surgeons who are much better robotic surgeons than me. If I to go see them, they're much more likely to finish it robotically. I will only finish it robotically if it's safe and I get it out with clean marks. Okay, and so is what I say to them, and uh, so again, it's a matter of making sure that the prime thing is patient safety. But, Tim, it's actually moved a lot further than saying how many pieces of liver we're going to take out and be able to reach on uh, the back of the right side and then to say from two or the day. Now, we're doing multi field surgery that includes doing a liver resection and then going and doing rectal resection, turning the robot and repos- uh, repositioning the patient or uh, I I just tilting the patient uh, I, in a different way to go get the primary cancer as well as the metastasis, very common now, okay? And now it's really, if, I, if somebody has liver and an ovary that's suspicious, so we go and do the liver surgery, go down and do otorectomy and hysterectomy and then extract everything through the vagina and, uh, and, and make it a, a robotic multi-field uh but uh natural orifice Mm, (laughs) and and so it's it it, the whole field is completely evolving and it and i keep having to say to people safety margins negative, and uh, it's not about the wow factor it is about uh if it's safe to extract food it depends on size and how we extract and so again lots of uh, lots of things going in but that's what makes it fun, Tim. And uh, you're just uh, you're just going through. You're you're a youngster. Uh, years to come, you'll you'll get to help decide uh, as new robots come on where we go next. Right. Right now, there is a transluminal robot that people are using for transmural work. Hmm. The monarch is an eight millimeter instrument. The ion is a four millimeter instrument. What if they got it down to two or three with hmm. an operating port? Are you going to come up the billiard tree and do things inside the liver and do? uh hepotoma extractions in the portal vein or or what are you going to uh, go do with a new the next generation technologies that's going through uh, really exciting times and uh and yeah. that's why for young surgeons have to engage okay and uh, and then discover what works for them and what doesn't work for them but also then learn what works for the field and what is really just i uh, i uh, uh, smoke and urine, okay and then uh, that's because there are a whole bunch of stuff that probably shouldn't be done. And and then driving the field, I am really, really excited for him surgery.
2: So with that being said then, Dr. Fong, what do you see, um, since Tim's a youngster and I'm not, (laughs) slash I think I'm younger than you, what do you see us HPV surgeons doing, and we can focus on liver, liver surgeons doing in 2030, 2040, 2050? in your estimation. Okay. So
1: as we go further, okay, I, I, I'm pretty convinced we're going to have higher and higher penetrance of uh, my surgery and uh, most of it will be robotic because it's just easier and, 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 and probably safer. And, uh, and once the cost comes down a little bit, uh, both from competition as well as just general development of instruments that are less costly, i think i i i'm hoping that we will go from the 15 20 percent that is right now done by mis up to 50 60 maybe 70 percent of the cases i think that there will always be a subset of uh, cases that we will always do happen, okay and uh and simply because again that there's a certain tumors that if you can't truly feel it it probably uh, you can't uh, probably get a uh, negative margin okay or, or as many times as you should um then i think it's going to be really fancy robots where we could truly help each other and operate together okay right now it's really a one-person operation and uh or even if the team is really efficient and somebody's using that port arm to truly flip things for you that uh it's really one and a half surgeons right i <laughs> uh, i really think that we're going to figure out those platforms that allow us to go in and and, and truly have assistance go to help you do things uh, and that's because and that's what is most exciting to me about the single port platform at present people go you know i uh, go you know, what do you think of singapore i go well singapore is really good for small field surgery at present but all the technology in the single port will eventually allow us to be able to put in two of the single ports and truly be you know i i six arms operating and helping each other and uh and, and I, I, in that situation, I don't need them to be small. I just need them to come in through an area that where the arms aren't trying compassion with one another. The reason right now we have armed robots, you just can't put in uh, uh, yeah. more from that and have them not crash. And uh, so yeah. I can see a lot of new things coming. I see that uh, down the line, okay, it's gonna be that, that we're gonna have eyes and uh, and those uh and antibodies that are fluorescently labeled for different fluorescence uh, uh, and some will bind onto the nerves and show you all the big nerves some will uh, stay in the bloodstream and uh, and show you uh, all the blood vessels and, and let me uh, uh, amplify on that right now everything we make for uh, dye imaging is meant to stay in the bloodstream for uh, for seconds to minutes Okay. If you're a robotic surgeon, you want whatever it is to stay in the bloodstream for hours. <laughs> yeah. and, and people are just starting to make those and, and think about those, okay? And uh, when I wrote that, I, one of the very first papers on a dye that stayed in the bloodstream for, for more than two hours, I, I, I when people first read the paper, they called me and they said, why would we want this? And they didn't read their conclusion, which is that for us to do real-time imaging uh, whether it's in the radiology suite or it's in the OR suite, uh, you want something that stays in as long as we're doing the procedure. And, uh, and then we are going to have uh, antibodies or metabolites that will light up the tumor. And if really the tumor is red, if the if the blood vessels are green, and there's reason for me to go backwards in color, right? Why not get blood vessels uh, are red? And that's because red has deeper penetrance. Okay. And, uh, and so if yeah. I you want, you want the tumor to be that, but once you have all that, you'll be able to display it in whatever color you want and be able to operate with much more security. So that's probably 10, 15 years from now. Then beyond that, it will be some automation in some steps. Okay. Perigable transaction, at some point, most of it will be the robot doing the work. You just have your just there watching until you get to an intricate area that you're going to go take over. And, uh, and I see that for flaps. If, we, if uh, robotic mastectomies ever become real, going to be that we're going to have sensors on the outside of the skin, we're going to have dye in the blood vessels, and, and the robot's going to have perfect flap every time if it knows where the tumor is to it. and mm-hmm. uh, And then you could do perfect nipple sparing mastectomies every time.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, on that issue, I, I've seen you talk about using ICG um, yeah. You know, the tumor kind of comes out as a negative almost. Are you using that uh, practically very often? Or are there specific
1: cases where you're using that? I use that a lot because I teach. I, okay. I Obviously, there are times when you know what the tumor is, and and and, and 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 we we uh, will go further. But because I teach, an ICG is so inexpensive, okay? and uh, it, uh, it's a very easy thing for me to say uh you know uh 50 icg five cc's and let's see what everything looks like in a minute okay and uh, 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 on, the, on the videos that uh, you must have seen me do some of these where you know tumor stays black because icg is on little turns bright green and every time you see black you have a positive margin and uh and so but a lot of uh, companies have now taken the icg molecule and embedded it in uh in metabolites that are tumor specific. So they can actually then use using those turn the tumor green, okay? And there are many permutations of how people are doing it. Obviously antibodies are pretty straightforward. So uh, PSMA antibodies that have fluorescent dyes on them or okay, people looking for a prostate cancer with uh, extra capital extension, uh, that's gonna be involved very, very shortly, okay? And uh, so lots of stuff coming forth that's really cool. We just have to really figure out when it's truly useful, and then try to make it cheap enough that we can use it for everyone. And uh, so, I think one of the uh, big things, though, is how, how we're going to eventually democratize this so the world. Yeah, it's
2: critical for sure. So to kind of switch gears here, then, Dr. phone something we had discussed earlier was the importance of patients with colorectal cancer. And with regards to this podcast, colorectal liver metastasis being evaluated by a surgeon. And that definitely hits home very, very hard for me. And as well as Tim, as, as we're starting out in our practices and, and saying, well, if only this patient got here sooner. Yeah. Um, it's just amazing how often I'm saying that. And there's been a lot of publications lately identifying that and sort of saying what we already knew, but it's great that there's more awareness. So you want to talk about that and get us started on that conversation, that's sure, Absolutely.
1: So let me just go through a very abbreviated history of resections of colorectal metastases, because I probably have gone through a, 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 all the different eras, okay? I'm kind of old. <laughs> there was a time when I still remember in medical school in the early 1980s, if we opened someone and we saw one single little met. we don't even take the primary out, okay? We used to think tumor must be everywhere because it was in the bloodstream. It then became very clear that uh, it is possible uh, that the liver filters out all the tumor cells, that it is possible that the liver kills most of the tumor cells. It takes millions of tumor cells to get to the liver for a few spots to form. And uh, so as we know now, uh, resecting colorectal metastases in the liver is uh, is standard therapy now. But that's actually not known by all the medical oncologists. That's not known by the public and uh and the other part that i i we're starting to forget is that surgeons can actually cure metastatic colorectal cancer in the liver without any chemotherapy like that actually is you know uh, uh, so a lot of people say oh we are able to do that now because our chemotherapies are so good it turns out one of my teachers joseph Fortner, back in the 1950s and 60s were removing these tumors when there was no good chemotherapy and uh and when he died suddenly I, I, uh, two decades ago, I actually looked up every operation he did and, and realized that his, of his patients, 25% were actual 20-year survivors, actual 20-year survivors, okay? So in a subset of patients, just removing the tumors is good enough. It's just that now the chemotherapies have made it easier and better so where we are now, okay, I still remember going and and people say, oh, okay, we'll let you take out what single tumors. Then they would say less than four tumors. Then they said less than, only if it's on one side. And then they said less than 10 tumors. And then it is that if you can get it all, and then it is, if you can get it all and there's nothing outside the liver. And then it's, if you can get it all in, and uh, and it's minimum disease outside the liver. Okay? So it's evolved hugely. Yeah. But the bottom line is that now a a patient with metastatic colorectal cancer, where we could clean up the liver completely, has about a forty percent chance of being cured, living on to old age, right? And uh, and the biggest obstacle to that benefit to the patient is not being referred to see a surgeon. So we looked. I looked up the experience in California, which is a very enlightened state. Last uh, decade, on um, fewer than nine percent fewer than 9% of the patients uh, with metastatic rectal cancer ever got treated with liver disease. We think it should be about 30 percent, And uh, and so that's a huge missed opportunity. So people will, uh, would say to me, well, is that because insurance companies trying to save money? And I go, no, because mm. in metastatic rectal cancer now, to get chemotherapy till death is a very expensive prospect. All the drugs are expensive. So usually people have uh, spent between 200 dollars to $300,000 of chemotherapy before someone dies of, of metastatic or rectal cancer. And, uh, and if somebody got a resection and was actually on the path to cure and only had adjuvant, it's actually a savings. So I don't think it's a money issue. It's a, it's a knowledge gap issue. So I'm hoping that here in this uh, program, as well as any place I can say it loudly enough, we will try to convince folks you know, to convince the practitioners, every time they see somebody with metastatic or rectal cancer, they at least think about a surgical referral, especially then if they gave chemotherapy and the tumor start shrinking. But I think that patients are now figuring that out. And uh, so in all the support groups now, they are making it very clear to each other that, that seeing a surgeon at some point is a very important step in getting uh, the appropriate care for metastatic or rectal cancer. Uh, in this
2: country do you think that getting more patients to see us is like obviously you said it's a knowledge gap and there's there's clearly a lot of stakeholders that make up that knowledge gap do you think it's more as you said with patient advocacy groups is it is it connecting with the patients more is it is it kind of trying to be more involved in um, in the education of, of medical oncology? Because actually, I, when I was, you were talking, I was just thinking to myself, in our surgical oncology fellowship, we spent time on medical oncology, but I don't recall medical oncologists coming to our awards at all, really. That's so, yeah. I mean, is, is that is that a way to do it? Um, how, how do we change that? Because I, know, I very often think chemotherapy is, is a good, at least, initial answer for patients, but doesn't seem like what you're saying is that the, the c seesaw is going the other way at
1: all. Oh, absolutely. So uh, that's an absolute great idea to to make it so that the medical oncology boards require that their fellows have have uh, rotated through surgical. That would just make sense, right? And, uh, yeah. and I, I I didn't even think about that. That uh, uh, now that you think about it we require our surgeons to spend time in, in, in medical oncology and radiation oncology we should have uh, 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 the same demands of a certain medical oncologist mm-hmm. but it's also been a lot of folks who've been in practice a long time i i still remember the guidelines from 30 years ago <laughs> rather than now and uh so again i i think we will need to educate and that's why every time I get asked to speak at a medical oncology meeting, I think of that as more important than speaking at a certain meeting. And that uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. it, is yeah. a bird out. Uh, and so, again, it's a, a lot of work to be done because there are a lot of patients who are missing the opportunity for extension of life and potential cure. Mm-hmm.
2: Interesting. I mean, I think that what you said too about the, the money it's not a money issue, but it could be it could be we the other way you know you get the word out enough it becomes a money saving issue as you said i mean chemotherapy is expensive um not even just the drugs every time the you access support is a fee and and on and on and on um surgery can at least give you a chemo holiday um as well so that's a very poignant
0: thing to to identify Mm are you just uh kind of this random thought occurred to me are you seeing um a big difference in return to chemo with your mis versus open patients like are they getting back to chemo quicker if they need it i mean that's point. but do you feel like that's a big difference
1: that is a major difference okay and i got it because again if a so let me take an for example okay and uh i had a patient a couple of months ago who was a methyl oncologist in a different country who was discovered to have a sigmoid cancer and it's even seven isolated men hmm. decided to come see me i was able to do both of them robotically and get him home on the same uh, 72 hours later and wow. he was back in this country within two weeks okay wow. and uh, and so so that that's because the gaps to chemotherapy really come in two parts, right? If somebody has synchronous disease, you go take care of one and then get chemotherapy, and then go take care of the other and get chemotherapy, or do you keep them off for six more weeks and then get uh, the second thing done? So there are still many places in this country where people are doing the primary, waiting a period of time, taking care okay. of that, and then putting on chemotherapy. That's a huge extension of time off. by uh, uh, that could have been uh, treated with that and uh, so so again it's uh, a it's completely changed the game Uh, so time to chemotherapy and uh, I think it has to be one of the parameters for outcome
0: yeah for sure
1: that is excellent
2: well I, I you know we're sort of Coming down on the time here, but I just wanted to make sure that you were going to allow us to continue to practice surgery in 2040, 2050 if you don't cure cancer with oncolytic viruses. Oh,
1: listen. Uh, <laughs> so you're, you're now uh, pushing me about novel therapies, okay? So let yeah. uh, frame novel therapies. uh That's because I'm also of a huge belief that every time we make progress in systemic therapies, surgeons are busier. I just want to say that to you, okay? Yes. Every yeah. time yes. Yeah. we have better systemic therapy, it is not that surgeons uh, become uh, obsolete. And, and, and every time people ask me, oh, when are you going to be obsolete? I go, never, because I... I and, and so when we got better systemic therapies for colon cancer, immediately, okay, 15, 20% of the people were converted to resectable. Now the latest papers, I, that was with folfox for Fulfurian, okay, back about 15 years ago. Now if you look at the Fulfurinox data, looks like 40% of people are now being converted to resectable, Okay. And uh, and so every time we do better systemically, uh, you got surgeons actually got more work to do. And uh, so breast cancer, I still remember it used to be so unusual to go resect the breast cancer nodule. And uh, now 100%. somebody on good hormonal and, and, and uh, having had good systemic therapy, having one or two residual uh, uh, active spots in the liver that we go take out, that's pretty common now. And lately, the thing that's kind of blown my mind completely is really the lung cancers, where somebody will get uh, bi- biologic therapies have a tremendous response. And the only thing left is a, 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 a much regressed a uh, few months in the liver. We're starting to take those out to assess for completeness of our treatment, as well as to look for a mechanism of resistance. And so I would predict that that down the line we're going to be doing more and more every time we go and have additional therapies uh, that work systemically. Second part, Tim, is that till therapies are starting to grow, okay? and uh, and mm-hmm. and so uh, till told the work that was done by Steve Rosenberg at the NIH and uh, that was really pioneering. I have I, I now I started to go out into general practice uh, as trials. And so the idea is that surgeons will now need to go harvest tumor so that we can actually do neoadjuvant assessment of the tumor, uh, isolation of tumor in okay. site so that we can actually go and, and uh, uh, make them useful for for adaptive a uh, 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 killing of cancer. And then uh, uh, the latest is editing those cells not to express intracellular in checkpoint like SISH and then sending it back in. So the smarter we get, and the fancier the uh, the therapies get, I think the surgeons will get more and more involved. And uh, and lastly, gene editing has become real. And so in my department, I have a giant uh, division of uh, gene editors, where who are people who are actually trying to send gene scalpels into liver and other organs to completely change the genome. It's it's really kind of cool. And uh, uh-huh. one of the trials that has come from my department, for example, is. Uh, a, a therapy for PKU, phenylketonuria. Every every per, every pregnant woman is tested, right, for for the possibility of phenylketonuria in, in the child. And uh, now we actually have potentially a therapy that will change the phenotype, the genotype and the phenotype of that child to mm-hmm. some, uh, somebody who uh, I, I is able to go lead a normal life. So those trials are ongoing, and a lot of those deliveries are going to be by by uh, liver surgeons and, uh, and and I bet you uh, some of it will be by some sort of MIS I, I, I technology. So we just need to get, stay engaged Tim and uh, I think there's lots to do.
2: Well, I want yeah. to do all of these things, I want to do all of them. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: well, we really appreciate your time, particularly on a Friday evening. We don't want to run over an hour. Um, you know it's been great this is kind of a, a whirlwind of a lot of stuff very interesting stuff anything else you want to put out there we can give you the mic for a few minutes if you uh, if there's anything else you want to put out there at all so
1: yeah just one more message okay and, and, and yeah. so for all the young surgeons in training i just want to make sure that you understand in cancer in solid tumors the surgeon is still the most important person in the entire treatment cycle of the patient okay no matter what the chemotherapy says to you or what the radiation <laughs> therapist says and uh, and in fact in most fields right you can't have in solid tumors except for germ cell tumor you cannot have a cure without a surgeon in genital malformations you cannot have, have, have an improvement in life without a good surgeon okay in trauma you wouldn't survive many of the trauma without a good surgeon okay so the surgeon it's one of the most important people still in health. And many times we are minimized in terms of our roles. And, uh, and I think, you know, go for it. They, 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 I, I feel the surgery is, is really still amazingly good. And, uh, and so very excited to, to have been in surgery and continue to be in surgery.
2: Yeah. That is a quite an awesome way to end this podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Mike Drop from Dr. Fong, thank you so much <laughs> for your time. Absolutely awesome. Thanks, you guys.
1: Thank you.